Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you all this morning and enjoy the time of fellowship we had this past Monday. As many of you were able to join us as we uh, just enjoyed really a sweet time of certainly the fellowship and the food, but also the, the song and the singing. I, like many of you, I was taken aback as soon as I realized that the, uh, the music we had was live music. What a blessing that was to hear, uh, hear the, just the gifts used to praise the Lord. So it's always a joy to, to gather together with the saints, with fellow believers, and with friends. Well, you might have studied at one time or another in history, or if you've been in the church, you may have heard through some church history, the great revivals of Europe, the Reformation, and others. Perhaps you're familiar somewhat with the revivals here in North America of the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, times of increased spiritual sensitivity and awareness of sin, a desire for holiness, a turning to God. Those were important and marked events, and those are not the only revivals throughout church history. This morning, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go to a date long before North American revivals took place, or those of Europe. We're going to travel back before the Edict of Milan and the legalization of Christianity, back before the Jerusalem church, back before even Pentecost. We're going to go back in time to the greatest revival that has ever been recorded in history. Certainly is a singular event. A singular response to the Word of God. And it comes from the most unlikely of sources. Unlike the Great Awakenings and those in Europe, it was not carried out by great preaching, by great orders. Nor was it due to the preaching of the apostles. No, it started with the most unlikely of sources, a lackluster prophet who was temporarily committed to fulfilling his responsibility and yet, as we'll see, the most reluctant way possible. And so the curtain opens on this third act of the book of Jonah. If you haven't already turned there, turn with me as we read Jonah beginning the end of chapter 2 in verse 10 through verse 9 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh? By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in being able to come together this morning and worship you, joining together in song, in hymn. And Father, we rejoice in being able to hear your word, to study your word together. Father, we recognize and acknowledge the the power and the effectiveness of your word as your spirit works within us to instruct, to convict, to guide us into all righteousness. Father, as we study this morning, would you give us hearts, like those that we've already read this morning, hearts of those in Nineveh who, at the hearing of your word, humbled themselves. Father, as we study this this morning, as we look at the implications and the application from this to our lives today, thousands of years later, would we be quick to respond, as quick as these Ninevites? We look forward to what you have to teach us this morning. In your name, amen. Well, the curtain opens on this third act of Jonah. He's standing, or as I really like to imagine it, he's sprawled on some eastern Mediterranean seashore, slightly the worse for wear after being somewhat unceremoniously deposited there by a great sea creature, vomited out, as the scripture says, three days after having been swallowed. But this was no accident. Both the swallowing and the depositing, three days later, were at the instruction, the explicit instruction and command of God. We've seen that. The God who is God of all creation, of the land and the sea and everything inside of it. You know, we could actually stop our study of Jonah here if there was nothing else, and we would have learned a tremendous amount about this God about his word that comes and how men respond to his word. It's actually summed it up quite well at the end of chapter 2 where we learn that salvation is from God. It belongs to God alone. And that is certainly the central theme. It'll be the theme of our text this morning. But there is one question that hangs from chapter 1 and chapter 2 that is not answered. Why there must be a chapter 3 and a chapter 4 And it's because of those opening verses of chapter 1, Arise and go to Nineveh. What about these Ninevites? As we study the book of Jonah, most importantly, we have learned that this book, despite its name, despite its association with a great fish, is really not about Jonah and that great fish at all. Sure, there are players in this, but all that happens, all that takes place, is to demonstrate what happens when the Word of God comes, when God's Word enters human history. And we've already observed how two sets of persons, Jonah and those sailors, how they respond to the hearing of the Word of God. All of the events throughout the prophets, as we've talked about the past few weeks, center around what takes place, what happens in history when God's word enters human history. As we've been observing these events, the different responses persons have to the coming of the word of God have stood out to us. Well, chapter 3 begins with what sounds like an echoing of chapter 1. Jonah is being given a second chance, a chance to respond correctly 
as a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of God, to the coming of the Word of God. Like so many times before, the Word of God comes to one of His prophets with a message and an instruction. Arise and do this. Arise and go proclaim this. Arise and say such and such. And there's a bit of suspense here, if you're reading slow enough. Because after God finishes speaking in verse 2, the camera zooms in on Jonah. And Jonah arises. But we've seen this before. We've seen the word of God come, and we've seen Jonah rise up. Jonah has arisen at the word of the Lord only to respond in an absurd and shocking way, a way that no prophet before him has ever responded to the coming of the word of God to flee and go the complete opposite direction, to run from the Word of God, to run from His responsibility. Arising to disobey, to suppress the Word of God, to renounce His role of, as prophet standing before the Lord, to flee to Tarshish. So what will happen this time? Will Jonah once again run from his commission? Not this time. Jonah obeys. He responds as a prophet should when he hears the word of the Lord. He arises to go to Nineveh to deliver this message. Now, I do need to comment that there is nothing in what takes place with Jonah from here through the end of this book that would suggest Jonah was particularly enthusiastic about his role and fulfilling his role. The brevity of the message the fact that the city is described as so large it's a three-day walk and yet he only goes one day's walk, the response he has in chapter 4, everything else that is, is mentioned about Jonah points to a reluctant, half-hearted effort on the part of Jonah in delivering his message. It's like the child who's at play and you call them to join you for dinner. They obey, but it's so slow, by the time they get to the table, it's going to be breakfast. Nonetheless, Jonah sets out. Now, you may have heard that Jonah would have been a shocking sight when he walked through Nineveh with his skin possibly bleached by the acids of the fish, reeking of rotten seafood. However, you need to understand that Nineveh is nowhere near the Mediterranean coast. From the Mediterranean coast to Nineveh was no short journey. It's estimated that by caravan it would have taken anywhere from one month to 45 days to travel this distance. It was close to 500 miles. So Jonah would have had plenty of time to recover physically from his ordeal. And though I imagine that mentally he was somewhat traumatized and avoided boats and seafood the rest of his life. In the second half of verse 3, the camera begins to pan away from Jonah. He's crying out to this city that he's arrived at with his rather abbreviated message, at least a, an abbreviated version is recorded of it. This message from God, but after verse 4, Jonah is entirely absent from this chapter. The focus now has moved to Nineveh, and it's here that we learn something of Nineveh, or if we're ancient hearers, something we are reminded of about Nineveh. You see, Nineveh is described as a great city twice in this chapter. As we'll point out in a moment, this very phrase, great city, should take us all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. Being a great city doesn't mean it's the capital city. It was the capital city at one time, and it will later again be the capital city, but now it's just an important city. 
Important enough that the king was there at the arrival of Jonah. But this city has an ancient history. Going back to Genesis 10. It was also a relatively large city. The description of a three days walk is likely not a description of the, the city's diameter, at least the city proper, since a person should be able to traverse the entire city, which was about three and a half miles, should have been able to traverse the entire city in less than a day if they were to just simply walk across it. But rather, it was a reference to the surrounding metropolitan area. To use our modern day description, in Genesis 10, we see the same reference to the great city. In fact, you can turn there if you haven't already. Genesis 10, verses 11 and 12, describing the great Nimrod. Verse 11 says, From the land, from that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth Ir and Kalah and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. And so while there are suggestions as to what this three-day walk means, I think it's most likely a reference to the size of not just Nineveh, but its surrounding area. Just as we might describe Atlanta and mean more than just the city center, but the metropolis that stretches out or the suburbs that begin to stretch out 20, 30, 40 miles in every direction. Or if you were to ask someone from California, where are you from? And they say, I'm from Los Angeles. Well, the city proper of Los Angeles is rather small. It's actually pretty tiny. But you learn that they may be referring to anywhere within L.A. County or even anywhere close to L.A. County, L.A. County itself being over 4,700 square miles. And yet, as you've probably correctly noted, even though this three days may be a reference to the surrounding area, the focus of Jonah's ministry is in the city proper. And it's from there that word spread quickly. This is an efficient place from which to begin ministry. Because people would be traveling into the city center from all of the surrounding districts, all of the metropolises, to do business, to do commerce. And word would have quickly spread as people came in and then returned to their homes from Nineveh to their surrounding areas. Like the human circulatory system where blood is pumped out from the heart to our digits, our fingers and our toes, and then returning again to the heart. So word would have gone forth from Nineveh to all the surrounding environs as that commerce was pumping in and out of the heart of Nineveh, that great city. Now observe for a moment the message of Jonah. This message Jonah preaches is a very familiar one. Not just because you may have read the story of Jonah, but if you've spent any time in Scripture, if you've spent any time in church, this would be a very familiar message. Because of the nature of this world, because of the nature of sinful man, when God speaks into this world, it usually, if not always, contains a message of judgment. Think with me for a minute. Let's go back again to Genesis, to the example of Noah whom we learn from Peter in 2 Peter 2.5, was a preacher of righteousness in his days. But his preaching was repent. Turn to righteousness because the judgment of God is coming. It's coming in a flood. 
in light of God's judgment, forsake evil and pursue righteousness. In Genesis 19, the message was judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. And we could give example after example, but you might say that's the Old Testament. And we all know the Old Testament is full of God's wrath and judgment. What of the New Testament? Isn't that where God's love is displayed? Well, let's look at that. In fact, let's go to the message of Jesus. Matthew 4.17. He begins preaching, and his preaching is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent? Why? Why do I need to repent at the coming of the kingdom of God? Because God's kingdom implies judgment for those who have not repented. Judgment was central to the message of Christ. It's because God's wrath comes with His arrival. It's the message Christ preaches. It's the message of the prophets. It's the same message that Paul and the other New Testament writers proclaim. In Romans, that great presentation of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ opens in chapter 1 by saying, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And we learn there is none righteous. No, not one. As such, every man lives under the judgment of God. Sin and the nature of man in this world means that when God speaks into this world, when His Word enters this world, it almost always includes a message of judgment. Is it really any wonder then that the world recoils at this preaching? That they would shudder at the thought that as Tozer notes, they only manage to live at peace with themselves by forgetting that they are at peace with God. And so when the gospel is preached, their imaginary world crumbles before them. The facade that they had, that they were hiding behind, is stripped away. They're left naked and exposed. And it angers them and it upsets them. To be reminded that they stand under the imminent judgment and wrath of a holy God. But there is, in this rather brief message, something else of which we must take note. And it's this short little phrase, yet 40 days. Why 40 days? Why a delay? Why not destroy Nineveh right away? They were certainly wicked enough. If you remember back to our first study of Jonah as we were establishing the context, these are horrible, wicked people. Infanticide was common. Skinning alive their enemies and showing the skins on the wall, well, that was a common day occurrence. Stacking heads on pikes, well, they could go eight tall. These were not nice people. Why 40 days? Yes, God will punish wickedness. Yes, judgment is coming against sin. Yes, God hates evil. You see, the reminder is God is patient towards all. And this is the other half of the message that always comes with the message of judgment. 
It's the other half or the rest of the story. Yes, God will punish these things. But even for ungodly, undeserving Assyrian Ninevites, there is still time, however short it may be. You see, this too is the message of God throughout history. This is the second half of the message of salvation. The bad news is that the judgment is coming. The good news is that you're still alive to hear it. Which means there's time to repent. But don't delay. It's coming quickly. God has always demonstrated great patience in judgment. Looking again to the time of Noah. In Genesis 6-3, when God first makes his observation about man and how wicked he has become, he says that 120 years is how much longer he will give them. I wouldn't wait 120 seconds. Based on the chronologies, the birth of Noah's son and their marriage, from the time God spoke to Noah, which was shortly after that, till the time the ark was finished and those first drops of rain hit the ark, would have been somewhere around 55 to 75 years. That's about how long we believe it took Noah to build that ark. For 55 to 75 years, they heard preaching of righteousness. Preaching and proclaiming repentance. Turn from your sin. Later in Genesis, God declared the end of wickedness of pagan people living in the land of Canaan. But he told Abraham... He would patiently wait. How long? Over 400 years before bringing judgment by means of the Israelites. 400 years of patience. And what about the nations of Israel and Judah? How many times were they warned of judgment? How many partial judgments? How many famines? How many droughts to get their attention? Before judgment came that could not be reversed. This is the message that has always come when God speaks. The message of judgment and salvation. Of wrath and mercy. At times it is more implicit than explicit, but it is always there. When God speaks into human history, it is to deliver this message. And what we learn, what we observe here and are reminded of throughout Scripture is that there is always this period of time in the mercy of God between the delivery of the message and the coming of judgment. And this is a critical time. It is a crucial time. A time for repentance. For Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a few hours. For the men of Noah's day, it was several decades. For the people of Nineveh, it was 40 days. Now think with me, if you will, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, this message of God's coming, His kingdom coming, and its associated judgment, this message has been delivered to us. We stand, as it were, having heard the message. But we stand, like these Ninevites, having heard the message, but not yet experiencing the coming of the wrath and the judgment. We are living in this in-between time. 
This time allotted for repentance. This time of mercy where judgment has not come but is coming. Does not mean God will not work in small ways, but we're talking about the wholesale judgment and wrath of God that has been promised to come. So this is a critical time. The time in which one can yet respond to the message, one that if you have not repented of, you must seize upon and repent. One that if you have experienced the mercy and the grace of God should compel you to call others to repentance so that they may not fall under the terrifying wrath of God. There may be some sitting here today who will not live to see next Sunday. I know we don't like to think about that. But the reality is there are some sitting here who may not see next Sunday. We don't know what next, the next week, the next day, or even the next hour holds. If you discovered a gas leak and knew that at any moment your home could go up in flames, do you think you would reason, well, it hasn't happened yet, so I'll just wait? Or would you spare no expense? Do whatever is necessary to see it resolved as quickly as possible to make you and your family as safe as possible. Too many of us, too many persons in this world respond, well, it hasn't happened yet. They mistake the patience of God as slowness about His promise as Peter describes it. But Peter reminds us, God is not slow. Rather, He is patient. He is kind. He is merciful, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, the kingdom of God is coming. We've heard that in our study of Matthew over and over and over again. And with it comes judgment for those who have not repented. But if you repent, if you humble yourself, if you call out to God for mercy and to Christ for mercy, then as we've already seen with the pagan sailors, well, God hears those prayers. And God answers those prayers. God is not slow today. He is patient, even toward ungodly, undeserving Americans. That takes us up to verse 5. And it's here, in verse 5 of chapter 3, that we encounter what I believe is the greatest, most shocking surprise in the entire book of Jonah. There have been quite a number of surprises through Jonah thus far, if you've been with us. You might have been surprised and somewhat shocked when Jonah first arose at the hearing of the word of the Lord and did what no prophet before him had ever done and ran from his mission. You might have been amazed at the great tempest the Lord hurled against the sea that made seasoned sailors, deep sea sailors, tremble in fear. Perhaps you were astonished at God appointing a great fish to swallow but not kill Jonah. You might have been equally surprised to see the great fish vomit Jonah onto dry land, to even find him still in the story. But all of that pales in comparison to the shock of chapter 3, verse 5. This foreigner, this half-hearted prophet, cries out his message in the great city of Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. We read this. Then... The people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What is this? 
You have to understand, as an ancient listener, the utter shock that this would have conveyed. Though it's not in the news as much now as it was a few years ago, you remember the atrocities and the horrors of ISIS. The things that they would do, the tortures they would do, the shock value they sought. This would have been little different to the ancient hearer than hearing today that all of ISIS was saved at this preaching. I wouldn't believe it. It'd be a little different because you know the wickedness of our own nation, of our own leadership, of hearing that all of Washington, D.C. believed in God, great and small alike. Again, I wouldn't believe it if you told me. But it says, they believed in God. And then as a demonstration, they submitted themselves to what is is and was a customary practice associated with a change of heart. (coughs) What we call repentance. A change of heart and a change of mind toward God demonstrated in the actions described in verse 5. Fasting and the putting on of sackcloth. And the sitting in ashes. This is remarkable. This is astounding. Nothing like this, understand this, nothing like this has ever taken place. There has never been a wholesale repentance by a great city at once. This is the greatest revival that has ever taken place in the history of the world. But don't go away yet, there's more. In verse 6, the word reached the king. Notice it wasn't Jonah got before the king. The word of God reached the king. The word of God has come that came into this world. The message of the creator of the seas and dry land reaches the king's ears. How did it get there? We don't know the details. This in itself is a miracle. How did the message of an unimportant foreign babbler making a half-hearted effort at proclaiming this message, make its way to the king? Well, it is the word of God. And the spirit of God has always worked to ensure that the word of the Lord reaches the ears of all who must hear. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 55. It's really, it's a passage that is quite fitting with our text this morning. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. (coughs) There we read. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. 
Now, if you know anything about kings of the ancient Near East, they were powerful despots, frequently considering themselves to be gods, persons not to be trifled with or crossed. Your life and death was held in the balance. Just the wrong look, the wrong word, the wrong sound, and your life was forfeit before them. And so when you read that the word of God came to the king, you should be holding your breath. What's going to happen? What is this king going to do? How is he going to respond? We've seen how Jonah the prophet, the prophet of God, this religious man responded the first time he heard the word of the Lord, he ran from it. How is this ungodly, despotic, cruel ruler going to respond? What did he do? He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and ashes. Now, do you see what he just did? Not the laying aside the robe, not the sitting in the ashes. Do you see what he did? What this meant? What did he just give up? What did he just step down from? He just abdicated his place of sovereignty. He has visualized, put into crystal clear picture for us what is going on throughout Nineveh. They are saying, you are God, you are Lord, we are not. Even the king steps down from his throne, lays aside his robe, the vestige of his rule and his sovereignty, puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. He's humiliating himself, humbling himself before God, saying, Yahweh God is Lord, I am not. He then issues a proclamation that by the decree of the king and his nobles, no man, beast, herd, flock can eat or drink anything. Every man and beast must be covered in sackcloth. Every man is to pray to God and turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. That means stop immediately what you're doing. Turn to God. And that's what they did. This is remarkable. Nothing like this has ever taken place. This totality of repentance is amazing. From the greatest to the least of them. They even make their animals participate in their demonstration of repentance. This is an incredible thing. It's something that has never happened before and has never happened since. The repentance of an entire major city. We're observing in these verses the radical turning from sin toward God, a profound turning from evil, a turning to the one who sent this message, to the one who is promising judgment for their sin. Notice how repentance is portrayed for us here in Nineveh. Because this is exactly the kind of response the Word of God always calls for, a total, wholehearted, complete turning from evil. When Jesus preaches, beginning in John, Matthew 4, 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that term repent is calling for what these Ninevites are doing. Then in verse 9, we see that the king of Nineveh recognizes what the captain of the ship recognized in chapter 2, verse 6. You see, repentance before God does not create any bargaining value. 
There is no coming to God after or during repentance and saying, see God, see what I've done, now you owe me something. Now you have to forgive me. Our repentance has no power in itself. It has no power to avert God's judgment. In fact, it is, as we observed in the Sermon on the Mount, a recognition not of our spiritual wealth and bargaining power, but our spiritual poverty. The captain of the ship and his perhaps, the king and his who knows, here in verse 9 of chapter 3, are recognizing what Jonah learned the hard way in the belly of the fish, that deliverance, salvation, is from the Lord. It belongs to the Lord alone. It will always remain in God's prerogative to deliver whom he will. This makes their repentance all the more impactful, doesn't it? They repented with no guarantee, no confidence in physical safety. No guarantee that they would be, they would be able to physically avert this travesty, this judgment, this wrath. And so they did not bargain. They called out to God for mercy, just as the sailors on the ship did before throwing Jonah into the sea. They call out for mercy from the only one who can give salvation. That's where we're going to stop this morning. And once again, we end in suspense. What will happen to Nineveh? What will happen to Jonah? Answers to these questions and others are for the coming weeks ahead. Now you may already have and may read ahead. Hopefully you'll still come back. But what I want to do in our remaining time is contemplate at least three issues. There's many more, but three issues raised in the story we've observed this morning. Repentance, as we've seen with the Ninevites, is a wholehearted turning to the one who has announced that you, to us that he is going to judge us. It is announced to you, you stand under his judgment. And it's seeking mercy from him. If you've heard the Christian gospel, you've heard the message of the wrath to come. And if properly taught, you've also heard the message of Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. And you've heard that this deliverance starts with repentance and turning away from your sin. It would be a mistake this morning to assume that Everyone here has experienced this profound change, this turning from sin and wickedness, that this radical response we have seen in Nineveh has taken place in your life. You may have been a person who has spent your whole life in church attending Bible studies, but it would be a mistake to just assume that. You see, this is a question that is right for any and all persons to ask, to ask them again, to do it again. This radical turning from sin, you see, it's, it's something that should take place again and again and again. It is not a once-for-all turning from sin, but something that must be done continually. This radical turning and forsaking of wickedness. There, there must be, yes, that initial turning to God, what we call that moment of salvation. That initial repentance where one is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But as long as you are on this earth, as a believer, as a Christian, you must be a repenting believer. There is no such thing as a non-repentant believer. This is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith, continual repentance. Christian people 
are those people who are repenting toward God, constantly turning toward God, recognizing their need for God's mercy, recognizing their absolute need for God. This is the response that took place in Nineveh. And I'm bound to put it before you this morning to ask if this response has taken place in your life. The word of God is clear. Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you stepped down from your throne? Have you stepped down from trying to rule and control your life? Have you turned it to him and said, you are God and I am not? This has all sorts of implications. And the clear implication for you and for me this morning is that we must turn toward him to repent from the godless ways in our life and turn back toward him and seek his mercy. Knowing that salvation, grace, mercy belong to God. Well, there's another reminder in this text that's worth our contemplation. That's really how unspectacular, unspectacular, the ministry of Jonah is in Nineveh. Here we have the greatest single evangelistic response in the history of mankind, the greatest revival in the world to date, more than 120,000 persons, the entirety of one of the greatest cities of the ancient Near East. They've repented and turned to God. It was not due to any great oratory skill on the part of Jonah. If anything, his efforts were half-hearted and reluctant. There is no great display of signs and wonders. In fact, God works in spite of this bumbling prophet, without any great sign or wonder, without any great display of miracles. So how does this take place? How does it happen? How does it happen that people repent? It's through the Word of God which accomplishes its purposes, as we read in Isaiah 55. We do not need to rely upon gimmicks. We do not need supernatural signs. We do not need some elaborate building. We need only the Word of God faithfully taught. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And just as we cannot manipulate our own salvation through repentance or any such thing, so we cannot manipulate the repentance, salvation, or sanctification of others. Salvation belongs to God alone and comes through His Word alone. There's a final question I want to consider, another issue that is raised as we observe the events in Nineveh that day, that week, that period. This is perhaps the most convicting question for myself. The question is this, for whom is repentance possible? For whom is repentance possible? If you've been the original hearers of this story, put yourself in those ancient sandals, you would have recognized that, and you would have expected that repentance was possible for Jonah. He's the religious sort of fellow. He's a prophet of God. Yeah, he's going to start out wrong, but we would expect that he is going to repent at some point. Most of us here this morning are the religious sort of people, the sort of people who are willing to come to church, to come to Bible studies. And you expect those type of persons to be sensitive to the idea of repentance. This turning back toward God is likely a possibility. But you see, the story has surprised us already because back in chapter 1, we saw that it was the pagan sailors who repented. They were much quicker to repent than Jonah was. 
And now in chapter 3, we see Nineveh. Those goyim, those non-Israelites, those Gentiles, great and wicked. This pagan city turning toward God. Repentance, we now learn, is possible even for wicked Nineveh. What we've been learning in our story of Jonah is that the God to whom we repent is the creator of all, the judge of all mankind. And so repentance toward God is available to all, a possibility for all. You see, the great tragedy of Israel throughout much of the Old Testament is that Israel quite frequently forgot that. That repentance was possible for all mankind. But thought that repentance was possible only for the religious types. Only for Israelites. And you see, I think this happens in modern Christianity. Just as much, if not more. In fact, I think we're living in a time when Christian people think that repentance is not really possible for the great majority of our country. Certainly, if you look at social media, the antagonism, the sarcasm that permeates so much Christian thought is disturbing. Quote unquote, Christian news sources make a mockery out of the unbelieving. We think that repentance is possible for those who would darken the door of a church or would attend a Bible study or have some disposition towards spiritual things. But when it comes down to it, our actions, our words seem to depict that we do not really believe that repentance is possible for the rest, for the Ninevites. We're like Jonah. But what about the vast number of people in our communities, in our cities? Do we really believe, will we believe, that repentance, the repentance spoken of here, that that repentance we see in Scripture, that it's possible for them, for the great, for the powerful rulers of our country, for the intellectuals, for the wealthy as well as the lowly? Do we really believe it? If you believe that this repentance is possible, you will be praying for it. You will act upon it. One of the greatest hindrances to evangelism is the lack of faith we have in God that repentance can really be worked in the ungodly neighbors and persons we see in the world around us. We have little faith. My prayer this morning is that for those of you who have repented, that you would recognize that repentance is possible for all because God is creator of all and that you will pray like it and that you will act like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning to us. We thank you for the faithfulness, however reluctant it may have been on the part of Jonah, that leads to this point in this story. Leads us within the gates of Nineveh to the heart of that great city where we observe the repentance, the crying out for mercy 
from a great and wicked people, formerly strangers to you, who were brought near through the hope of your goodness and your mercy. Father, would you help us to live a life of repentance, repenting over and over again to mark our lives as repentant believers, to demonstrate repentance from the greatest to the least. And Father, would we believe and act upon the belief that repentance is available and possible for anyone, not to hold back, not to falter in preaching the gospel, not to forget to pray because it's not really possible, but to pray and to share your word, the hope of salvation with all. In your name, amen.